0: Welcome to The Last Thing I Saw. I'm your host, Nicholas Rapold. It's been a while since I've really focused on a documentary on the show, and a terrific opportunity came up with the release of The Viewing Booth. The Viewing Booth is a movie that's been at festivals, but for whatever reason, did not make its way to theaters until now which is unfortunate because it's one of the best movies I've seen about how we sort out what we think and feel about the hundreds of things we are shown each and every day, intellectually, politically, emotionally. So, I was very happy to talk with the film's director, Renan Aleksandrovich, and Eric Hines, curator of film at Museum of the Moving Image, which is giving the viewing booth a two-week theatrical run. We talk about how the movie works, Renan's main subject, Maya, and the questions the film raises with its simple but ingenious concept. One final note, as you'll hear, this is my first episode in a long time that I have recorded in the great outdoors. So, enjoy the mild breeze.
1: Just a brief note, we are going to be podcasting from the Museum of the Moving Image. We're in the courtyard right adjacent to the main lobby, and that's appropriate because the film that we're going to talk about is called The Viewing Booth, and it's in first look, the annual festival at the Museum of the Moving Image. So I'm very pleased first to have the director of The Viewing Booth, uh, Renan Alexandrovich, with me. Uh, welcome, Renan. Hi, Nick. It's wonderful to be in this. <laughs> thanks, <laughs> thanks for playing along with me. And, and then, of course, uh, the uh, chief curator at Museum of the Moving Image, uh, Eric Hines. Uh, welcome back, Eric. It's been a little while. It
2: has been a well, while, Nick. It's good to be back.
1: The viewing booth has shown a couple times in first look and also will be getting a run. I saw it at the True False Film Fest, uh, where I also uh, was fortunate to, to grab a few minutes with Renan for an interview. I thought maybe we could just start off maybe just describing the movie. And I kind of have a hokey idea that I would try to describe it, and then Eric would try to describe it. And then maybe you would just give your perspective on it. How very appropriate. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I'll I'll start with probably like a shortest uh, description because because it's a movie that kind of complicates as it goes along so it's almost like the less parameters I put on it um, but basically it is a work of nonfiction and it's it's kind of in a experiment setup in the sense that. The, the directors present and set up a viewing booth uh, at Temple University and asked uh, a few students to come and look at clips I think mostly viral clips uh, that relate to uh, I guess Israeli- Palestinian relations and conflict and a portion of them are ones that are put out by a human rights organization um, sympathetic to I guess Palestinian concerns and then the you know a portion of them is of the clips come from, Israeli army or Israeli army affiliated groups. Uh, And what ultimately happens is that uh, Renan settles on one particular viewer uh, who becomes this kind of, I want to say model viewer, but maybe not in the way that that one thinks of that, but just in the sense that she proves to be like a very uh, interesting subject watching things. Um, I haven't even gotten to how it's shot, but maybe at this point I'll pass it over to Eric. (laughs) (laughs) No, I think it's a very good beginning. Uh, And listen, I think one of the
2: greatnesses of this film is that uh, when you're watching it, it does seem, once you under, familiarize yourself with the setup, it's very simple and straightforward, and then everything that happens is anything but. But it, yeah, it, it winds up being uh, unexpectedly a kind of a, a pas de deux, you know, it's the, the twosome of Renan and uh, Maya, who was, winds up being the, the counterpart. But I should say, I'm gonna immediately complicate what I just said, because actually there is a third figure here, which is the audience that's watching the film. Um, and there's basically that triangle, and there's always that triangle in, in documentary film. I think it's one of the things that I think about the most when it comes to nonfiction is that triangle and the different sides of those triangles and different lengths. And which when when are the sh- the two corners of the triangle closer together, and when are they further apart? And I think that this is a sort of that diagram really works perfectly for this film because you are you're looking through both of their eyes as a viewer. You're looking through Renan's eyes, you're looking through Maya's eyes. You're trying to sort of weigh what one is seeing and the other is seeing. You're also seeing things yourself. Renan's allowing you to see the footage that's also in question. So, um, you know, you and at some point you may be aligned with what Maya's saying or, or how Maya's reacting and at other p- moments you may be aligned with what Renan is saying uh, and how Renan is reacting. And um, that tension between those three sides, um, I think is w- w- what makes this film so riveting.
3: Is it my turn? <laughs> <laughs> turn. Um, should we go to the next question? No. <laughs> I, I realize how difficult it is to describe my film, but I would say, I, I'm gonna say that it's, the, the viewing booth is a film that explores our experience when we watch non-fiction images more specifically i think it's a film that explores our experience when we watch non-fiction images that are difficult for us to see that go against against our world views or our belief systems and then what do we do when we see these things even more specifically, it's a film that explores how um, a young woman, um, a young American Jewish woman who is very pro-Israel, um, how she looks at images that portray the Israeli military occupation in the West Bank, images that are hard to see, and hard to s- hard for her to see, and yet she verbalizes her experience, she verbalizes her thoughts, her feelings, and she allows us to, to sort of see a portrait or a psychological portrait of what it means to view things that you don't want to see. Um, and that, in, in, in a more universal sense, it relates to, to how we watch images, not necessarily images of, of uh, Israel and Palestine, but how we watch images that impact
1: us and what do we do with them. Uh, part of what's what's so interesting is, is watching her as, you know, clearly she is sympathetic, especially to Israel. But I actually watched it for the second time recently. And for some reason, I noticed that even more this time. I don't know why. And I think there's something about the movie that the more you examine it, the more you, you look at it, things come out of it. I mean, how did you choose, you know, the clips to, to include in there? Because that was the decision that had to come prior to even it's in the making of it, you know. Just to give a kind of range, I mean, for example, there's a clip of a surprise night raid by Israeli army the soldiers where kids are kind of being forced to wake up. So, and that's what it's depicting. Um, there's another where, I guess, is apparently a notorious one because that's how Maya reacts to it, where a Israeli a woman is you know, harassing and speaking profanity to uh, to a Palestinian woman who's behind, like, this kind of fence thing um, and things like that. I mean, how did you select those? I'm actually
3: going to speak to the selection and also speak to these two specific mm-hmm. images, two specific videos. Yeah. But before that, I want to go back to the beginning of your question where you, you said, in response to me, you said, yes, she's mostly symp- sympathetic to Israel, mm-hmm. but... And then there was, like... Um, you didn't finish it but (laughs) you're right because she is you're right because what we see in the film is Maya actually having to deal with being empathic with the Palestinians Mm -hmm. in some of these videos and what is shown there but then what happens when she feels that what cognitive processes or what defense mechanisms sort of come into play in order to deal with this sympathy that might not be comfortable for her. Th- and that that's what's so interesting in her as a viewer, is that we see her emotions and then we hear how she tries to deal with them, sometimes by accepting them and sometimes by sort of finding ways to overcome them, right? So, But you're asking about the whole set up in terms of the, the images, because Eric was Referring to the triangle, this film is really a a, a, a kind of a three-way dialogue between Maya, a specific viewer, the specific images that are in the film, and and myself. And and what what is my relationship to these images? So I selected, when I started putting this together, because of the very constructed nature of the setup, I knew that I would have to defend it. I, at least we'll have to be able to defend it. Why did I choose these videos? So to, to be able to answer these questions? And I, then I, I had to not just choose videos, but think what they represent. And while I myself was interested, as someone who is who has made um, cinema that's meant to change people's minds about Palestine, about Israel, and wants to expose the reality and the way that I understand the reality there, which is very much against the the the, the Israeli policies and the israeli politics and the israeli regime in that sense so i was interested how people who don't think that react to footage that depicts that but i knew that in order to make something more you know fair and whole and defendable i need to have sort of a bigger landscape and i decided to choose 20 videos that are that represent that are uh, human rights videos that represent that, that depict the occupation and the various kinds of violence that this occupation creates and then the 20 other videos are videos that were actually put online by the Israel the Israeli military or Israeli settlers so at least in their minds these images actually either depict Palestinian violence which is part of those images but also depict how how um, the settlers or the military are, are on the right side of things and I I suggested to the people participating, the people who entered the viewing booth and had this interface and could watch and, uh, and, and uh, respond, I suggested they're free to choose what they want, although sometimes I sort of ask them, would you maybe watch this, would you maybe watch that? So you, you mentioned these two central images. The most central image is this home invasion in the middle of the night. It's a, nine, it's a, it's a video, it's an uninterrupted one-shot video of nine minutes where a person um, is filming military entering his house in 3 a.m. without any warrant, performing a search, waking everyone up, taking pictures of everyone, invading the home, and like the mo- its there's no open violence, there's no graphic violence, but there's violence in the normality of the situation, in the way that anyone knows, anyone, everyone there knows that this can happen. Soldiers know that they can enter wherever they want, and the Palestinians know that soldiers can enter in the middle of the night. And I think that's the horrible violence in this clip. And that's why I sort of decided that this would be, when the dynamic allowed it, I decided that this would be the central image that the film would focus on. Because it doesn't have any open violence on it, but still it's a very violent clip, and Maya really has to deal with many aspects of the violence that's, that's disclosed in it.
1: I mean, that's the other aspect that I really want to underline that's fascinating about the movie is watching, literally watching her reactions as well as hearing them. Um, And, you know, in this case, it's seeing her react to the kids on screen, for example, which, um, you know, she finds them cute. So she she says, you know, this is really sad because they're kids and she keeps returning to that. But then she kind of vacillates between that and thinking, but how is this happening? This must be a setup, you know, this doesn't make sense. How are they? Although she later kind of figures out, that it would be the family who be viewing it. So it's this, you see this interesting progression and you have this, you know, basically full screen close up of her face. Um, so you, you kind of s- see her expression. Um, and then you also, you know, sh- show parts of the clip and the whole rhythm of that is really uh, amazing. Um, I mean, could you talk a bit about that kind of process that she goes through? Honestly, I can't really think of a movie that better shows the mechanism of how we sort what we look at and, how your belief goes into that? Because normally
2: it's yeah. about things we're either watching or not watching. Mm-hmm. I don't want to watch that. This is not an experience of watching somebody not watching. You're watching them watch, <laughs> and so there's a really complicated series of reactions that that happen there and processing. Sometimes you can see it on her face. Sometimes you can't. But no, I think your question from Anam was like what you know, sort of that experience was like for her. The best you could describe it. Yeah.
3: So, mm-hmm. like, like you say, Eric. What was fascinating for me... So, as, as we described, there were several people who participated in this. And in the beginning, I started editing the film in this way, where I would take a video and show how different people respond to it. But Maya Levy, who is finally the protagonist of the film, and I focus on her, was especially interesting for me. I went back and watched all her footage, all the footage I shot with her. That, that session was 100 minutes long of her watching and responding. And I realized that I'm I'm interested in her, I, there's an opportunity here, because she is very far from me politically. She doesn't see reality the way I see it. But on the other hand, she doesn't turn away from the images like Eric suggested. People say, no, I don't wanna watch this. This is just, this is the work of a human rights organization. I just don't wanna watch it. She, she watches and she, and then, she has to deal with it somehow and over that one specific clip I believe she changes her emotion about 10 times back and forth so she's sympathetic and and then she pushes back on it and she says no but I suspect them I don't think they're saying the truth and so she pulls she pulls back pushes away from the sympathy but then again she can't not feel what's going on there so she comes she she again is sympathizing with the family being woken up and then again there's some cue that would make her go the other way and the different processes that happen so suspicion is one thing and another thing is sort of asking herself about like you said about the framework why is this being filmed now what's the purpose of the filming that allows her to sort of not Deal with what's really in the frame now, but also, but just sort of frame it in the in in, in the question of why is this being filmed? Not, uh, but then she sort of comes back, and then she starts assuming all kinds of things that might be happening here. And when I later ask her, uh, because what we didn't mention, and maybe is important to mention, is that after this viewing, half a year later, I asked Maya to come back, and. Do more viewing, but this time she views herself, her own viewing from six months earlier, and reflects on it. So, I w- in that second session, I asked her, "Why? Why do you suspect them here? Why do you assume that maybe this happened?" And she was trying to sort of make sense of her own responses and came up with interesting things. For instance, like I saw something on Netflix. I saw a fiction, I saw a fiction film on Netflix that had a similar situation in it and I remember what was there, and probably I took that context and sort of tried to use it to decipher this nonfiction material. So all kinds, all all of these mechanisms come up through her viewing.
1: Yeah, and I, you say something that sort of succinctly sums up everything, which is like, it seems like you're focusing more on the filming and how that's happening versus the reality of what's going on, versus the events that are on there. And, I mean, was that kind of an epiphany you had there in, in the moment, or or is that something that you had been kind of thinking about as throughout the process, you know?
3: It was at the moment in the sense that the film is very constructed, but then the the dynamic in it was really something that was very unexpected and it was so fragile that the film is edited in a chronological manner. Mm -hmm. There was no way to take a shot and move it out of its chronological sequence because the dynamic was so fragile and things were changing and I was responding to her cues. So I was frustrated in a way by her I these meaning images mean very much for me and I know what they mean these are images that I'm I actually am familiar with because I've been in these situations and I've seen them yet it was not my role there to tell Maya what I know about these images I, I, my role was to listen to what meaning she gives these images but it was frustrating Sometimes to see that what she sees, what she what she refers to is nec- not necessarily what's happening in the frame, but rather this yeah. larger critical framework which she applies to it, and and so that's how that question
2: came yeah. up. I haven't said this yet. I think this is one of the most uh, important and extraordinary films of the of our time, and one of the one of the things among many that I love about the film is, whether Renan's describing it right now, is that frustration, but how not overtly frustrated, he is throughout. There's just, you can just tell, you can tell, there's these sort of subtle moments where you can tell if Renan would like to say something and maybe we would like Renan to say something, and he doesn't. It's, it's just continuously opening things up, asking questions, asking, allowing himself to be humbled in relation to her answer, even if that answer is something that is frustrating for various reasons. And it actually winds up being continuously generative. It's why the kind of, two, the, the, the duet of that aspect continues to work because you allow her to keep challenging you rather than you shut her down or to end the conversation somewhere
3: yes that was that what Eric is saying is definitely one of the challenges that was one of the challenges of being in the moment yeah uh, And 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 I remember after the filming ended I was worried that this would be a film in which I would betray someone. Mm-hmm. I mean, there was no question of betraying Maya because everything about this film means that she had to feel good about it for, for the film to come out. But I was worried about betraying the images that are in it and the Palestinian activists that had filmed these images um, in great danger and with, with a lot of courage. And would they feel Afterwards, this film just created a, a platform for the dissection of their work. Or B'Tselem, as an, organi- an organization that I highly respect and support, would they feel that um, this filmmaker that is usually sympathetic to the cause just made a film that allows to, to discredit our work? And like, this is a little anecdote, but before the film was finished, I took it to show it to all the people who filmed videos that are in it, all the Palestinians. And it was interesting, they were sort of huddled around the computer watching it and and i was watching from sitting on the other side of the screen watching so it was like a sequel to the viewing booth because now i'm watching them (laughs) react to the to the film and they were very optimistic about maya actually they said we know she will change her mind about this and i asked them what makes you think that because listen to all the doubts She's bringing up regarding your work. Is this fake? Is this biased? Is this? Uh, can I, should I even believe this? And they said yes, but that—that's our daily bread. We hear that every day. That's not new to us. What's new to us is to see you were, Nick, you were referring to her eyes. So they said, "What? What's new to us is to see someone looking and having to grapple with the images in this way." And. And that's why we think she will understand.
1: Yeah. Well, yeah, I mean, it seems that some point of connection or engagement is a step, even if it involves a lot of skepticism.
2: And I was just going to say, we screened the film last night to an audience, and it was interesting to see, even within that sample size, some people like saying, I'm a documentary filmmaker, and this is making me so, like, you know... I feel so at the moment I'm feeling low hope for what we do because I can't make a difference and then other folks not necessarily seeing the same way, seeing something in in the eyes and and I think you're in that camp as well to to
1: some degree. Yeah, Yeah. that's exactly what I was going to ask actually next which is (laughs) is that I mean emotionally you know as as a filmmaker you in in the movie you include a certain amount at the end you know it's like which felt like it feels like understatement in the movie that you're like from I forget your exact words but it's like there's a lot for me to sit with this is a harsh mirror
3: this, this is a lot for me to learn yeah. from your viewing,
1: yeah, yeah, uh, yeah it, it, sometimes you remind me of like a therapist or something sometimes you know, just in terms <laughs> yeah. of I don't know how to take that but <laughs> <laughs> in terms of being very even toned you know sure. and like this is a situation. How did you think about it? you know what I mean and but you even to your for yourself, you didn't you, you don't spin things, but at the end, I was left feeling sort of hopeless I have to say you know in in a sense. Not hopeless, but like I, my hope took a hit. Um, I mean, how do you feel now? For example, after you know, sitting with it now for a while.
3: I mean, I think, I think the fact that you felt a little hopeless, that's good. I mean, that's mm-hmm. something that this film wants to evoke, but not, not as I don't think it, it's. I'm not trying to make a statement that this is hopeless. There's no way okay. to convey things through through images through films. I really don't feel that. But if people have a moment of loss or a moment of hopelessness, that's good, I think, because I'm trying to open up a certain conversation Mm -hmm. and maybe create or be one of a few films, some of them actually screened here today, that create a vocabulary to open up this conversation of should we just accept the paradigms that we have about how images work or um, are we maybe in a different era from when these paradigms were, were, were created and should we ask ourselves, in this media environment, in this time, how do people perceive images and what should we do in order to make images work the way we want? So we don't have, I think, in, in documentary in social justice or political um, justice-oriented documentaries, we sometimes take into consideration that we have this mediation machine, we identify something bad, We point the lens to it we film it we process it and on the other side we get empathy understanding um, education and then but maybe not so I think what this film wants to say is maybe not and let's all of us just think about it for a moment
2: and and you're very careful in the way you talk about it and you're certainly careful and the the rules you've established for yourself what's comprised in your film in that it's it's specific. It's specific to a particular situation. And it's specific in terms of these two different sort of streams wh- whereby the footage is arriving to us from the same time I think what you're watching can be applied to other circumstances and scenarios as, as I, th- I know you had hoped for. But though, so my point is you set it up to such a degree for it to be specific and yet in being so specific the mirror reflects in various directions. And I think one of the By selecting YouTube clips, by selecting internet footage, you allow that to sort of be, I think, kind of an implicit parallel. There to be an implicit parallel for other media of that nature. We're not looking at disputed documentary footage or fiction films, and somehow like, you know, uh, coming up with you know our, our our theoretical explanations for what we're watching and the grammar of cinema. No, the idea of of thinking of dash cam footage or, you know, police brutality uh, instances, you can imagine a very similar scenario and very similar conversation with folks around some of that. So, you know, I, I appreciate that about the film because without really reaching into that territory it allows the viewer to kind of reflect on on how they might respond to footage of that nature.
3: Right, and in fact uh, the Hebrew title of the film is, is "Mar'a," which means mirror, because I think we were talking about a little bit that we all think that media literacy is very important to have the the wide audiences educated on how to read images correctly and and, and to be able to, to critically read images, but on the other hand, I think there is another side to media literacy, and that is to understand the processes that we have, the internal processes that we go through when we read images. So... And I I agree with Eric that my hope is that it would, that this specific attempt would maybe uh, inspire other attempts to do this with other materials, other audiences. And since you mentioned the YouTube videos, Eric, I think that's a great example of what I mean by questioning our paradigms in the new environment. Because Mm -hmm. the way we understand documentary films to work, for instance, my way of understanding how documentary films work, was formed about two decades ago, or began to form around two decades ago, when people didn't have online access mm-hmm. to documentary footage. Mm-hmm. They were dependent on this form of a film or on the form of news to have access. They didn't control the, 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 their time with it. It came and it went and it was framed in a certain
2: way. And they wouldn't felt, you they wouldn't were, they couldn't have felt entitled to the footage either. It was not a no, possibility.
3: Yeah. No, So. What, what a crazy, different non-fiction environment we're in now. Yeah. Where people have their way to sort of engage with footage as much as they want and as many times as they want, and to scrutinize it and to, um, So, so that's a huge difference. Huge. So it can't yeah. be that even the watching of films is the same in this environment as it was. But that means turning the camera. The metaphorical camera to the viewer, mm-hmm. understanding the difference of the viewer today and the viewer two decades ago, for instance.
1: That's so interesting to think just, yeah, just in the past two decades, how the fact that you can have a media clip as an object <laughs> more or less that you can send to someone as well as something that's new. Um, and I don't know that also made me think a little bit about what is persuasive. I mean, I always wondered if, if you asked Maya, what would be persuasive to you if she would have an answer for that even? And she might try, but it would be something that would be probably impossible, <laughs> you know, like,
2: the, the skeptic's glasses are on so strong, yeah. exactly what would cut through that entirely. Yeah,
1: Yeah. Um, it seems like it, it cuts to the heart of the medium that there is no way it could be persuasive. But it's, I don't know, obviously you're persuaded by something, so I don't know.
3: Yes, and we have to remember that images comprise a big part of what we engage with today, but not all. And I think, so I didn't, so when I was making the film, I had this rule for myself that I know nothing about Maya except for these meetings in the booths. But after the film was finished and we were about to premiere it and together for the first time, we sort of had our first conversation beyond the films. And it was then that I saw that I also categorized Maya in so many ways. She, she, she had surprised me in many ways. And she is actually a, pretty, a very open-minded person. Mm. So I think there might be something with images mm. that is more difficult than just a direct conversation between people. Yeah. I've never tried to persuade Maya of anything, but my the conversation with her showed me that it might be this reaction to images um, that is different from the reaction to just conversation.
2: That's interesting to hear, and I think that I get a little when I hear folks get impatient with Maya and say things in Q and A is about like you know um, taking issue with her, which I understand. But what I always think about is the open mindedness it takes to even be there for that amount of time with you. That decision to subject herself to this conversation and to be engaged in it and to be interested in it in a kind of sense of like she's clearly interested in where you're taking her says a lot. It may not say a lot what about her politics, but it certainly says a lot about the person who's electing to do that. I,
3: I agree. And and Nick, maybe one to your last question, you asked what would persuade Maya. I'm not <laughs> I'm not I'm not talking about Maya now, but in more Anyone, general yeah. terms. And this is maybe the only understanding I have after the film because I have no conclusions, mostly questions. But what I realized from the way that she looked at the images and because I wasn't pushing, um, I realized that question marks seem to be more effective than exclamation marks. So if I was to come to someone and say the Israeli regime of Palestinians is apartheid, there's very little chance that I might convince them of that. But if I tell them, let's go over the facts so we can agree. This is happening, this is happening, this is happening. These people have no rights to vote. These people are under military occupation. These people have partial rights. These people have these laws against them. What would you define the regime? You give me a name. I think that's that's what I come away from the film from is that if dialogue that's based on asking people questions and the images are 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 asking Maya questions and that's why she responds to them and that's why she engages with them and uh, so maybe that's the only yeah um, possibility that I come away from the film
2: with and it's not a standard uh, talking head film by any stretch of the imagination but I do think that it is a great example of interviewing in nonfiction what winds up happening over the course of this exactly Exactly. what how you post things as questions how you allow answers to lead to new questions and the restraint that you have like it's a incredible feat of interviewing i think
1: absolutely um well, I wanted to uh, you know talk about the movie also just in a like a larger context of you know movies like it that are uh reflexive in some way or reflective as well because uh, I think this is a movie this is a movie that is both of those things and because I think there are a lot of movies that are reflexive that are kind of dry that are actually. It doesn't feel like there's a lot of heart uh, in in them as well, but um, so I don't know. I wonder if each of you could talk about a movie that kind of comes to mind in relation to the viewing booth that you know either it's in lineage with or responds to, or even just takes a totally different approach. And um, and I think even in first look, there there are great examples to choose from. To
2: the- well, I will say, I will say uh, maybe let's talk together for a second because in we've been talking together about this film for about a year and a half, and uh, there had been an exchange during those dark months when we didn't know if we were going to be able to show, show the film like we did yesterday, um, and but also just thinking about the various contexts that the film might exist within um, and how uh, there were films uh, by filmmakers that I, I'm aware of but I hadn't necessarily seen the latest work that you came into contact with um, and were enjoying actually the conversation that was coming up literally between filmmakers but also between the films. And we've actually chosen a few of them for first look so do you want to talk maybe
3: yes uh, so i feel that there are there's there are a number of filmmakers that i've seen that are doing this work there are pre- probably many more that i don't this work of trying to turn the tables in in the sense that to give the viewers some sense of what we are doing as viewers so for instance mm-hmm. kevin b lee and chloe galibert Lane um film Bottled Songs, which is basically a a reflection of Western viewers trying to come to terms with ISIS videos. Uh, What do those videos mean? And sort of dissect them and take them apart, making us go go through the experience of understanding our relationship with this this very contentious media.
2: And it's epistolary, so it's also, it's them encountering that footage, but then also encountering each other's reactions. Right,
3: because it's like a letter exchange, video letter exchange between them. Yeah.
2: Fascinating film. um, And and, and we also show uh, Chloe's other film, Forensicness, um, which is her, kind of an overt desktop essay reckoning with Chris Kennedy's Watching the Detectives, a film we also showed at first look several years ago, um, two years ago actually, and reckoning with where... The footage and where the imagery was coming from for that film, and going to the sort of source, the Reddit sources for those, and kind of going down a rabbit hole, and kind of re-emerging from the rabbit hole with, I think, even tougher answers or tougher questions than than watching the detectives uh, came up with in terms of the kind of uh, the firestorms that start, you know, in terms of how people get doxxed and how we sort of run with images and how we expect images to yield answers, and there's a limit to what images can yield and. And even a film that deconstructs that becomes its own version of images that um, can be problematic. And I love her work because she's—I um, find that there's a real heart to what to that. You know, she's really sort of feeling these problems. It's not a—it's not a puzzle. You know, it's not a kind of reflexive game. These are problems that she feels on a kind of really deep psychic human level. And so I really appreciate the work.
3: Yes, I agree <clears throat> that she and and they developed some very interesting language of taking some very like you said reflexive is usually very cold but they're able without without any sensationalism they're able to make it very warm and personal and you just want to get into this experience that they're having with the images you're just totally identifying with that it's a very special work And, and i think we also mentioned just in terms of the viewing booths, another kind of reflexive, reflective cinema, and that is a tradition, a small tradition in cinema that exists of films that were actually turning the camera literally towards the viewer. Mm-hmm. I think the first example we can remember is uh, Giga Vertov, doing that in, in, mm-hmm. in, in some sequences of the man with the movie camera, sort mm-hmm. of pointing out to the audience. this uh, and then there are other examples, one one very special, one, one that's special to me is a short film by Funk called uh, Ten Minutes Older, in which he films children watching a play and just looking at the emotions that they're going through and, and, and how engaged they are with the play. And then ten minutes later, they're going to be changed. You're going to be something else because of the play. What I, w- thinking of this tradition, what I, was hoping to bring into it, and I hope I succeeded, was to try to penetrate the shot of the face of the viewer, which was where all these films had arrived. They, they brought us there. We were looking at the viewer viewing, and we, ma- we had our thoughts or our assumptions about it. And I asked myself, can we go in? Is there a way to sort of start Listening to what goes on in there and mm-hmm. of course the viewing booth is not in any way an experiment or it doesn't create any data And it definitely doesn't is not an objective recording of what happens in Maya's mind mm-hmm. But it is a, a f- an authentic verbalizing of what she thinks about what's happening to her and in that so that's where I try to take this tradition uh, Carried also by Abbas Kurastami for her instance with Shireen, mm-hmm. and sort of maybe take it one step further and assume what's going on in our minds when we view.
2: Mm-hmm. That's, I can't possibly add to that, but I will say that um, in a slightly different direction, there's a film that, the viewing booth somewhat rhymes with from the past that uh, blew my mind when I saw it years ago, which was The Bell Obs by Victor Kosakovsky. And it's less about reflecting back to the viewer, but it definitely allows the, the second stage of what happens in the viewing booth where the subject is looking at footage of herself um, and, uh, you know, the, there's a moment I, I, I can't tell if this is a spoiler or not because it's most people haven't seen this film and, but there is a moment I'll say it as broadly as I possibly can. It's a powerhouse of a mid length film, um, where you're dealing with a, 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 a couple in, in rural Russia who are, uh, they're pieces of work. They are, they've clearly been living together for a long time and they lived together in a remote place. Um, and you're watching various moments of conflict and bad behavior but also comedy and uh, there's a moment uh, towards the end where one of the subjects is given an opportunity to encounter a record of what Viktor Farktikovsky has obtained um, and it, it feels like something breaks in the film. The reaction to that sort of Awareness of self, which really only cinema could have provided, so it's a very, it's, its an intervention. It's definitely like breaking the wall, like you're being intervened into that space. And in a sense, your viewer is being brought into that too, because the long before there's a viewer in the audience uh, encountering this, we are the implied. We're implied in that moment. We are—we are the third eye. We're the sort of with this subject imagines others seeing and hearing. She gets a chance to see and hear. And it, it feels like a break. Um, and, you and you don't even know what to do with it as a viewer. So it's an extraordinary moment. But I do think, I felt that in that kind of turn that the viewing booth takes, where I'm like, what, what's going to happen when she's encountered with her own image and her own opinions months later?
1: Yeah. And, and I'll just only add to that that it seems appropriate that Kosakovsky also made a short film of his sons uh, as a toddler, his first encounter with a mirror. Which is a whole other. So <laughs> bringing <laughs> yeah. back to the Bring mirror. Back. Yeah. <laughs> to the mirror. Um, there's. I mean, we could talk about this for hours, obviously, but I wanted at least to spotlight this movie because I just feel like it does what so many movies we're told do you know uh, and it does it well and it does it in only also like under 75 minutes <laughs> so it's kind of it this is cris- this kind of perfect little crystal for me
2: it packs quite a bit yeah. and and it stays <laughs> with you obviously for a long time I yeah. literally have yeah. not stopped talking this film
1: for a year and a half yeah yeah um, and I'm glad I did see it with an audience before everything um,
3: and it was it's so great to see it here again yeah. on the big screen um, it's really a gift to, to be in a cinema again with people and to see the film on a big screen, I, I I knew I missed that, but I didn't know how much I missed that until it happened. Yeah. So I have to thank Eric for waiting a year and a half and remembering that this film exists and saying, Okay, now's the time, we can do it now and And
2: and, and we we talked about that how it's never going to I don't think this film's gonna age a day at any point, you know. I just think yeah. this is gonna continue to be a film that people are gonna point to and reference and learn from for a long time.
1: No, absolutely. I, I was I was just thinking that because I saw it last March, and then we had another year of you know anti empiricist you know, just yeah, a life or death situation of anti empiricism which is kind of incredible to live through. So yeah, I encourage everyone to to watch the viewing booth. Um, Renan, thank you so much for talking about it. Uh, thank Nick. you, Nick. And Thank you, Eric. Eric, thank you. Thanks, Nick. You've been listening to The Last Thing I Saw with your host, Nicholas Rapold. If you like what you heard, please consider signing up at Rapold.substack.com. Special thanks to the Minarets for the opening music from their song, Montserrat. Thank you for listening.